Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us again into your presence, for calling and assembling your people. Spirit, please open our ears that we might not just listen but hear. Open our eyes that we might not just look but see your glory, triune God, in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. About five years ago, Aaron and I went to see a screening of a documentary about Wendell Berry. I'm not sure how big of a readership Wendell Berry has among this congregation, but I suspect you've either never heard of Wendell Berry or he's changed your life. Uh, The short version is that Berry is a farmer and a writer who writes mostly about farming, uh, but through farming, he writes about everything else. Food systems, community, localism, politics, war, religion. He's brilliant on everything except religion, and even there, he's pretty good. Um, but Barry's life and thought isn't actually the reason I bring up the documentary. It's the title. The title of this documentary is Look and See. Look and See. And the title comes from a moment in an interview with Barry's daughter, Mary. And Mary is describing the way that Wendell and his wife, Tanya, taught her to inhabit the world. She describes going on walks with Wendell where he, alive to the wonder of the world around them, would point things out. Look, he'd say, that bird, see how it builds its nest in preparation for mating season. Look there at that field, see how it was plowed poorly and how that affects the irrigation. Look, that flower, see its brilliance opening to the sun. And it's subtle, but you may be able to hear a distinction between those two words, look and see. They're basically synonyms, right? But, but there's a distinction in usage which I think is helpful. And it's one that I think we're intuitively familiar with. Surely you can think of an instance in which you've been looking at something, but you didn't really see it. Right? You can probably imagine such a scenario. And this, the distinction between those two words, between looking and seeing, has to do with the agent of action. Who's responsible? Who's the, the main actor in the action of looking and the action of seeing? In looking, we are the agents. We're the ones doing it. Looking is a case of directing your attention. You raise our eyes. You turn them in the right direction because if you don't look, you're certainly never going to see. If I spend all evening indoors glued to my phone, there's no chance that I'm going to see the glory of the sun setting beyond the hills. But seeing is a little bit more complicated. We ourselves are not quite the active agents when it comes to seeing. In fact, we're sort of the recipients of seeing because seeing is revelation. Seeing is when Having directed our attention towards something, the object of our attention reveals itself to us. A crude example might be something like an optical illusion, right? Where you stare and stare at an image until suddenly it arises. The thing you're supposed to see as you're looking arises out of this mess of visual data. A better example might be the act of reading, where you're looking over this basically random collection of scribbles, right? Arbitrary signs. And yet, as you look over these scribbles, words and sentences and ideas start to fill your mind in the act of seeing them. 
than being revealed. Reading is also a good example because it shows that seeing often requires prior instruction or practice. A child must be trained to see, for instance. So when Virgil used to look out our window, he didn't know how to comprehend or recognize the big machines that would zoom past until we trained him, slowly but surely, and now he can spot cars from like three miles away. It's amazing. We, we say things like, to the untrained eye, because our eyes need to be trained. And as you look then with a trained vision, as you direct your attention, the object of your attention reveals itself, and your looking becomes seeing. Seeing then is a gift. And I found myself thinking about looking and seeing here at the beginning of the Gospel of John. John himself is one who sees. He's a seer. He's an eyewitness, and he wants us to know that. He tells us outright, I've seen things. I want you to look and see them too. And one of the ways he does that is by sharing with us the things that Jesus said. So as we open the Gospel of John, I don't know if the Pew Bibles have the the words in red, but the red words make this really easy to see. What are the first words that Jesus says in the Gospel of John? It's just before our passage for this morning. Two of John's disciples start to follow Jesus around. And Jesus looks over his shoulder and sees them trailing like puppies, and he asks them, what are you looking for? Or what are you seeking? That's where he starts. And maybe they don't have a great answer, or maybe they're just stunned to actually be addressed by this guy who John said was the Lamb of God, but they they don't have a good answer. They respond with a question, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus responds, not how we might have expected, with like, at Mary and Martha's house, or I'm planning a day trip to Galilee. No, he responds with this, come, and you'll see. So they do. Whatever they were looking for, they're seeking it from Jesus now, and by the next morning, they have seen. They're convinced that they found the Messiah, so much so that Andrew drags his brother Simon along into this growing band of disciples. What are you looking for? Jesus asks. And then he says, come and see. Those are the question and the answer that remain the bread and butter of all evangelism. Every announcement of the good news of Jesus asks directly, just what is it that you're looking for? And however you answer that question, I'm looking for meaning, I'm looking for truth, I'm looking for a friend, I'm looking for love, I'm looking for just one thing in this world that isn't a lie. If you're honest in your answer to that question, you'll be ready to hear and receive the follow-up invitation. Come and see. And it's only when you obey, it's only when you accept that invitation, when you actually go and look, that you'll be able to see. Now let's be honest, Andrew and Simon were pretty easy marks. They were already disciples of John. They were serious about this renewing Israel thing. And their honest answer to Jesus' question, what are you looking for, if they had had the presence of mind to actually offer an answer, probably would have been, we're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for the renewal of Israel. They've been looking diligently. And so it only takes them one evening's conversation with Jesus to make them see. But not everyone in this world is looking. In fact, very few are. That's why the anecdote about Wendell and Mary Berry sticks with me. It's a father training his child to be attentive, to be on the lookout, 
to be ready and eager to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's something that parents are supposed to train their children in. It's something that brothers are supposed to call their brothers to. It's something that friends invite their friends into because not everyone is looking. Not everyone is listening. 1 Samuel 3, our Old Testament passage, begins by saying that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And it says that there was no frequent vision. There's an image of a faltering lamp about to go dark, of an old man losing his sight. There's a voice calling in the night. The book of Samuel picks up where the book of Judges left off. And at the end of the book of Judges, things aren't looking so hot for Israel. The judges who have governed the people have been mostly evil. And without faithful leadership, the people fall into sin after sin. And so the book of Judges ends with this condemnation. It says, everyone did what was right. Do you know the rest? In their own eyes. So there's not a whole lot of looking going on. There's not a whole lot of seeing. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Meanwhile, Israel's come under the domination of the Philistines What was supposed to be this great nation and a blessing to all the other nations is now this second-rate nation that's just scrabbling along. And most importantly, at the end of Judges, Israel's worship is just in shambles. The book of Judges ends with story after story about faithless and wicked Levites. The Levites who are supposed to be the ones leading the people in the worship, in the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself has become basically a joke under the leadership of Eli or his lack of leadership. In chapter 1 of Samuel, things have gotten so bad that when Hannah goes to the tabernacle to pour out her heart before God, Eli can't even recognize what she's doing as prayer. He thinks it's drunkenness. And when your chief priest can't even recognize prayer, you're not in a good situation. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, it's much the same. Israel is again under foreign domination. Their religious life is a mess. It's just a bunch of competing factions fighting over the letter of the law and missing the spirit entirely. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. No real looking and no real seeing. But both our passages for this morning, the beginning of Samuel and the beginning of John, come at the beginning not only of the book, but the beginning of a new work that God is working among his people. God is preparing in both cases to renew and remake Israel. God is on the move. He's taking the initiative. He's calling Israel forth. He's speaking to them, inviting them to listen and to hear, to look and to see. In the book of Samuel, that whole book is going to be about God raising up a king to rule properly and righteously over the 12 tribes. And in the gospel of John, we see a rabbi, a teacher who's calling 12 apostles a new 12 tribes, a new Israel, to to reign with him as a new king. And so we start with these call narratives, Jesus calling Andrew, and then Simon, and now in our gospel passage, Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida, the same city that Andrew and Simon were from, who were called just the day before, but he's in Galilee today, and here's Jesus who approaches Philip with a different strategy. There's no question this time, no invitation, just a call follow me. And let's just notice that Jesus does in fact personalize his invitation to his disciples. And we could do some speculative psychologizing here if we really wanted to, right? Was Philip the kind of guy who would just be paralyzed by a call to reflection and invitation? Is he the kind of guy who would obsess for weeks or months over the right decision? Should I follow him? Should I not? 
Or was he simply, as he's identified in the next verse, a man who was already deeply reflective when it came to the Scriptures, who was ready not only to look but to see the Messiah when he appeared? Whatever the case, Jesus skips over the question, what are you looking for? He skips over the invitation, come and see, and he just goes for the direct summons. Follow me, he says with authority. And Philip obeys. Philip is this fascinating kind of background character in the New Testament. He's the kind that, that I and maybe you are more comfortable imagining ourselves to be. Like, I'm not a Peter, right? I'm definitely not a Paul, probably not a John, not usually a Thomas, but Philip. He's mentioned only a handful of times. He's kind of faithful. I could be that guy, right? <laughs> Philip is a word-of-mouth guy. He's not a gossip necessarily, but he's not the kind of guy to keep a good thing to himself. He's the guy that people go to when they've heard something juicy, the guy you can depend on for some interesting news. In John 12, 12 chapters later as it happens, uh, just as Jesus is arriving triumphantly into Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, we read this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast of the Passover were some Greeks. These Greeks came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Philip loves to get others in on this seeing Jesus thing. There's no suggestion that he's a brilliant orator or especially fearless. There's nothing to indicate that he's a quote-unquote gifted evangelist. He's just a guy who loves to show others the good things that he's seen, to share the goodness And so, here in John 1, he's the guy that Jesus summons so that he can summon others. That's what he does. Philip goes to Nathanael, and his his opening is kind of cute, right? He's like, we found him, as if Philip was the one who found Jesus, and it wasn't Jesus who very intentionally came and called. But you get it. We found him. We found him specifically of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is Philip's version of the question, what are you looking for? He's telling Nathaniel, look, man, he's here. We've been reading these scriptures our whole lives. We know that they're pointing at someone. He's finally here. But Nathaniel is not quite as ready as Philip. Like Jacob, with whom he will soon be compared, Nathaniel's not going down into obedience without a fight. And so he asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, Nazareth was... A backwoods village, we might say. Less than a thousand people. It's the kind of place where you'll maybe see a sign as you drive in about how, like, their little league softball team won regionals in 60. Um, But there's no, like, there's no kings that Nazareth can claim as their hometown boys. So Nathaniel's skeptical. You're telling me that the hero who literally Moses wrote about is from Nazareth, right? It's the same sort of thing that's happening in Samuel. You know that Samuel is a book about, you know, politics and royalty and epic-making events. There's giants and prophets and soldiers and kings. And yet the book of Samuel opens with a humble woman, with Hannah. She's not a royal woman. She's not a queen or a judge. She's also a backwoods woman from Ramah. And not just a backwoods woman, but a backwoods woman with likely the lowest status you could possibly have in most ancient cultures. She is a wife without a child. 
Hannah's barrenness at the opening of 1 Samuel represents the barrenness of Israel at the time. But that's, that's not to reduce the very particular pain to symbolism, right? Hannah feels the pain of barrenness acutely. But notice how Scripture starts this story of kings. It doesn't start with Samuel already in the temple. It doesn't start with what we read today of the word of God coming uh, in the night. It starts with Hannah, with this faithful, faithful and barren woman who is begging God for a child so that she can dedicate that child to his service. And so that we can, we can see all the more that Yahweh is beginning a new work for Israel, a work of renewal and rebirth. It opens with Hannah praying before God so that we can see that, that the work of God is initiated not in the way that the world expects, not with a strong-armed ruler coming onto the scene. The work of God of renewal begins, in this case, with the power and love of a faithful mother. God does not despise small beginnings, powerless places, despised people. In fact, he seems to prefer them. The majestic line of Davidic kings begins with a weeping, prayerful woman from a backwoods holler. The eternal kingdom of God is inaugurated by a child born in flyover Bethlehem and raised in the sticks of Nazareth. Don't ever allow yourself to believe that God intends to work only in the big places, in the Jerusalems or the Washington, D.C.'s of the world. He is just as much at work in Coleman and Chelsea, and yes, if you can believe it, in Vestavia Hills. In a similar way, it's worth questioning yourself. Where are the places that you think God wouldn't be mightily at work? What are the neighborhoods, the zip codes? What corner of the world would you greet with Nathaniel's same skepticism? The theological answer to Nathaniel's question, can anything good come out of Nazareth, is we're talking about God. That's precisely the sort of place where he works. But that's not quite Philip's answer. His answer is even more profound, and it's an answer that should sound familiar. What's he say? Come and see. Come take a look. See for yourself. Jesus' invitation is now the invitation of his apostles, and it's the best response, the best invitation that we can give to so many of the world's dismissive questions because people are ready with a thousand excuses not to look at Jesus, not to give him a second thought. Why should I care about some lunatic from the first century? Why should I want to know more about the guy whose movement hates X group of people or who committed Y atrocity? There are a thousand variations on the question, why should I care? Why should I look over there? And apologetics may have their place. That's kind of another sermon for another time. But when it comes to the face-to-face encounter, when it comes to you talking with someone who has not yet encountered Jesus and doesn't want to, the proper response is rarely some exhaustive argument. It's rarely even like a biblical theology. Evangelism is not an argument that God expects you to win. It's an invitation that God wants you to extend. Come and see. Here's what I can offer you. My eyewitness testimony, a personal invitation, a customized recommendation from a trusted friend. But you've got to see for yourself. You're going to have to look if you want to see. And we can get scared in that moment of invitation of saying, come and see. Even I can get scared as a priest that I'm setting up Jesus for failure in that moment. When I say, come and see, I get a little bit worried that Jesus is going to deliver, right? If I build him up too much, 
and this person that I'm speaking with doesn't see his greatness, I'll, I'll have failed. I want to tell you, banish that fear. Perish the thought. Seeing is a gift of God, and he will bestow it on all who come to him without guile. To the one who knocks, he opens. To the one who seeks, he gives. The one who asks will receive. If anyone is the real deal, it's the Lord of the universe. If anyone is going to deliver on a promise, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can invite people to come and see and trust that Jesus will show up and will see them and will make them to see as well. Because you're not responsible for, because you're not capable of knowing the inner workings of every person, of any person really. You can't know even the most insightful among you, the ones with MAs in psychology or whatever, uh, you can't know. You can, you can know a lot, but you can't know all of the longings and motivations and doubts and fears of tr- and troubles of any one person. Certainly not in such a way that you could flawlessly guide them into faith. But Jesus knows precisely how to address each person. He knows the timing. He knows the tenor. He knows the timbre. It takes Jesus one greeting for Nathaniel to realize that Jesus knows him, and it catches him off guard, right? How do you know me, Nathaniel says. How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And we all want to know what was going on under the fig tree. We can't know. I'm sorry. (laughs) I did a lot of study. There's some ideas. We can't know. We can't know precisely what Nathaniel was doing or thinking under that fig tree. We can come up with all kinds of, you know, pious possibilities, but it's not the point. The point is that Jesus knew. It's the kind of intimate or interior knowledge that can only belong to God. And Jesus reveals to Nathaniel precisely the details he needs to hear so that he can conclude, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. And notice the order there. Jesus recognizes Nathanael deeply and essentially. And then Nathanael recognizes Jesus. Nathanael has been seen. And so he looks and then he sees. Jesus knows your life just as clearly and more. He knows the innermost thoughts of your heart and your neighbor's heart the hearts of your friends, the hearts of your family. He knows your needs. He knows your desires. He knows your secret sins. He knows your public triumphs, and he knows theirs. Here is a man who told me all I ever did, says the woman at the well. And if we turn to him, if we hear his voice in the scriptures, hear his character proclaimed by the church, he can make our skepticism, like Nathaniel's, evaporate because he will show you yourself as you are. And that may not be a pretty sight. When we obey God by looking at our life for evidence of fruit, we must be prepared to see for God to reveal a weedy mess of sin and vice. So let me admonish you this morning. If you don't know your own sin, ask God to reveal it, because he knows it, and he will reveal it to you. The Lord has searched you and knows you thoroughly. But in turn... Once Jesus has shown you who you are, he also promises to show us himself and to show us glories beyond our wildest reckoning. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. You believe, Jesus says to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than this. Truly, truly I say to you, you will see 
Heaven opened. The angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In Genesis 28, Jacob, you remember, saw a ladder to heaven. He saw angels ascending and descending between heaven and earth. And if Jacob, who is the first Israel, you remember that Jacob becomes Israel. If, if the first Israel gets to see that ladder, then Nathanael, whom Jesus says is a true Israelite, and whom there is no deceit, he's going to get to see the true ladder to heaven. Nathanael will see that Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Jesus is the person and place in which the heavenly and the earthly commune. It's when Jesus is lifted up in death that he becomes our ladder to heaven. In Christ Jesus, heaven is coming down to earth and earth is drawn back up into heaven. And so in looking to Jesus, we see the Father and his love. It's in looking to Jesus that we're able to see the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and the sins of the whole world. God is ever ready to just inundate you with seeing to overwhelm the floodgates of your mind and heart with the vision of his majesty and love. And yet we have to start by fixing our eyes, turning our attention to Jesus. We have to look if we're going to see. We can look and see the very word of God curled and crying in a manger. Look and see him emaciated from a 40-day fast, still rebuking Satan to his face. Look And see him tenderly touch the eyes of the blind, the bodies of the broken, and healing them for kingdom service. See him at the head of the table, breaking bread and offering wine, the leader of the feast. See him weeping in the garden, praying for the steadfastness to suffer for you. And as those of you who know Christ know, Those of you who have seen a glimpse of God's blazing glory, you know that seeing demands a response. When Samuel finally hears God's call and recognizes it as God's call, his mission is only beginning. Seeing and hearing demand a change. You can look at something and then look away from it. But once you've seen something, you can't unsee it. When you finally hear, like Samuel and God calls you, you cannot be uncalled. When the vision of the glory of God fills your sight, when you see the incarnate Lord weeping for the pain and loss of this world, when you see him laughing with his disciples, when you see him bruised and broken for your transgressions, you're being called into the mission of his church. You're being called, like Philip, to repeat the invitation of Jesus. Come and look and see So I invite you to look, brothers and sisters. Hear the word of God calling you to his service. Look. See the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sweating blood for you. Black-eyed for you. Thorn-pierced for you. Eyes closed in death for you. And now shining with the radiance of resurrection and glory for you. And then call others to do the same. Come and look and see. Amen.